Welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad in print and online 24-7. But every Monday, I am right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, where we go behind the lens and below the line. Uh, Film, television, music, even literature on occasion, stage, and, of course, special events. Talk about a special event. $1.2 billion. Uh, For all of you regular listeners, you know, I've been saying $1.2 we'd break a billion opening weekend for Avengers Endgame. And it has happened. Uh, It took 10 years, 22 films. But Marvel and Disney have done what no one ever thought possible, breaking that $1 billion box office opening weekend for a single film. And what you also have to bear in mind is that the number two film at the box office this weekend is Captain Marvel. So why the stock went down this morning, I don't understand. There must be a mistake there. Um, Avengers Endgame has now shattered every, every recorded box office record. Um, it is, it's amazing. It is unheard of. Uh, three, 350 million domestically, 859 internationally. Uh, the preview night, 60 million, a single day gross. And at, on Friday for first opening day, 156.7 million. The biggest Saturday, 109 million. Sunday, 84.3 million. Uh, Saturday is the first hundred million dollar day without previews. China had an opening day of 107.8 million and opening weekend 330.5 million. It is the number 4 non-local film ever released in China. Uh it is the eighth Marvel film to cross a billion dollars and the second to do it this year, Captain Marvel being the first. Uh this is astounding and for those of you that have seen the film that have seen the film, you know why. These numbers are what they are. Uh, Avengers Endgame is bombastic. In a word, it is bombastic. Uh, but, and why and why Marvel and Disney did not get a licensing deal with a Kleenex company, I don't know. They should have gone to Procter & Gamble or somebody who makes facial tissues because you need a ton of them to get through this movie. There are tears at every turn. At the first press screening last Tuesday morning, I was there with my lawyer and George Pinocchio of ABC7, and all three of us were there sniffling and, I think, summarizing the film. At the film's end, we all sat through the credits, the house lights come up, and my attorney said, good thing the credits were so long so my eyes could dry before the lights came on and people looked at me. Uh, that This is a heart-wrencher, a heartbreaker, and at the same time, it fills your heart with absolute joy, excitement, and you soar along with this film. Um, I've got to mention, some without giving away spoilers, uh, I have not posted my review yet for that very reason because there are friends of mine that haven't been able to see the movie this week and they're seeing it this week and they're begging me, please, 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 please. So in deference to some important people uh, in my life, I am holding off on posting the review. But what I have to talk about, cinematography, Trent Opelok, um, 
he did in the cinematography on Infinity War, Captain, Amer- Captain America Civil War, and Captain America Winter Soldier. Outstanding. But what he really gets to do here with Endgame, he really gets to deliver um, some very nuanced lighting and lensing and a lot of to create very intimate personal moments for the bulk of the characters, especially our original Avengers. Um, It is wonderful to see. And we get some really incredible shots with reflections, uh, reflections in windows, um, reflection off of eyes uh, that really add a depth and texture and emotionality to the film. The technical prowess of the film go beyond the action set pieces. And there are less action set pieces here. This film really does focus on the personal relationships and the self-discovery and the journey uh, of that each of our characters face. Uh, so, I mean, just an amazing job by Trent. And piggybacking with Trent are the editors, Jeff Ford and Matthew Smith, uh, Schmidt. This is Jeff's eighth Avengers film. Uh, Avengers Iron Man. Uh, Matt has done, uh, this is his fourth full editing job, co-editing job. Uh, he did three others as an assistant editor on the, it, for the MCU. The editing is rapier. They're the, a huge, huge action set piece in the third act. will just have you jumping out of your seat. But throughout the film, Finding that emotional balance of quiet and reflection, knowing when to pause and hold a shot for the emotional impact, that takes talent. That that is a gift. And that is what Jeff and Matt do. The editing is superbly executed on Endgame. And it really showcases Trent's cinematography even more. Um, It's really outstanding and very well done. Um, also go hand in hand, the production design, John Ploss and Charles Wood. Um, John Ploss is his first job as a production designer, co co-designer with Charles Wood, his sixth Marvel film. And to give you an idea of the range of Charles's production design experience, he also did the production production design for laws of attraction, uh, a number of years ago, a rom-com. And what, is done here with the production design is beautiful between all the worlds that were created in the prior, especially in infinity war, but then to take us into Hawkeye's home, Clint's home, his yard. We go to Tony Stark's home. Uh, We get to see, and again, there's a great intimacy that is created a warmth that you don't see from the starkness, no pun intended, of the high tech that fills the film as a rule. So just on every level, every technical level, the production values are exceedingly high, but what all of those production values do with the wonderful story from Chris Marcus and Steve McFeely is really give an emotional grounding to this film and brings everything full circle since the very first Iron Man. If you haven't seen it, see it. If you've seen it, see it again. It is outstanding. And it will be probably 
the single biggest cinematic event of the year. Um, I'm curious to see what happens with Star Wars uh, in December, but it's going to take a lot to top the emotionality uh, and story context of Avengers Endgame, and I don't think it can be done. So, having said that, let's move on to the rest of today's Behind the Lens. At the midpoint of the show, we've got writer-director, cinematographer, Villan Trube. And if I said your name wrong, Villan, you can correct me when you call in. Talking about his new film, The Dirty Kind. Uh, it's an interesting film. Uh, we've got a lot of fun things happening in it. With, uh, with things going wrong for a politician, a hooker, some gangsters, and a P.I., so that gives you something to ruminate on for the next 20 minutes or so. But before we get to the dirty kind, I've got a pre-recorded exclusive interview for you with the wonderful writer-director Dan Pritzker. Dan, uh, I just, I love his work. Uh, he previously did a film called Lewis back in 2010. It was done silently, he, a silent uh, but for music, Wynton Marsalis did the music for it, and it was a, the story of, of Louis Armstrong as a little boy getting his very first coronet. Uh, beautifully done film. At the same time, there was a short film that came out called Bolden on Buddy Bolden, who little is known about Buddy Bolden. There are no recordings. There might be one photo of him. He is truly the father of jazz in New Orleans. Um, he preceded Louis Armstrong. Uh, he was put into an insane asylum in 1907, where he remained until his death in 1931. Um, a lot of the story is put together through various readings and, and research that Dan did. Um, but he cast the film brilliantly. The short film had Anthony Mackie as Buddy Bolden, but because it took so long for Dan to develop, he threw away what he had when on his first on his first go round with Bolden. He wasn't happy with it. He redid everything, including recasting, and he and he brought in Gary Carr to play Buddy Bolden. Uh, Ian McShane does return uh, from the original short as Judge as Judge Perry Michael Rooker, another favorite of ours, is also in the film, and Rena Wilson plays Louis Armstrong. And I have to tell you, hopefully we'll have time to get to Reno's interview today as well. It, it was in the stars for Reno to play Louis Armstrong. But I'm going to shut up. I'm going to let you take a listen to my conversation with Dan Pritzker talking about Bolden and the, the legacy of, Billy, of Buddy Bolden. Hey, Dan. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Well, I am so, so happy to be talking to you again. The last time we had a chance to chat was for your outstanding Lewis. Oh, my gosh. Great. I fell in love with Lewis. I love the visuals. I love the imagery. And I followed up with Anthony Mackie a couple times in between. Hey, what's going on with Bolden? Are you coming back for Bolden? And then it kind of fell off the map, and, and Anthony was like, Nah, not, not tied to it anymore. And I'm thinking, oh, Dan cannot let this film die on Bolden. 
And lo and behold, you did not, and you blew my mind. Kind of you to say. Glad to hear it. What a film this is. The journey you take us on through music and visuals is outstanding. Thank you. You know, I, in my, my intention was when I was when I was writing Boldly uh, way back when, I took my mom, and I probably told you this about, about Lewis, I took my mom to see a Chaplin movie, uh, you know, City Lights with the Chicago Symphony playing the score of live. And um, I'm sitting there watching this thing, and it was the most amazing entertainment I'd ever experienced, really, the live music with this great film, and it, it blew my mind. And I thought, well, as long as I'm making the Bolden movie, why don't I make two movies? Sort of a Bolden would be a very dark story, and, and Lewis would be a more Chaplin-esque sort of follow-up, mm-hmm. short, a short film, 70-minute film. And I meant to, I didn't mean for you to really see one after the other, but really you'd see one and then at some point see the other, sort of a, I don't know, a diptych, um, a, a two-part thing that, that um, was what my intention was. But when I got home from shooting, we shot both movies at the same time, and when we got home, I I dove right into Lewis. I couldn't watch Bolden. I knew I did not have it. Mm-hmm. And so effectively, I finished my second movie first. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then Witten called and said, well, you know, it's going to take you a while to do Bolden. And my, my wife agreed. <laughs> and he said, why don't we go play some dates with Lewis? And uh, and cover that ground, and so we we went out and did those Lewis gigs, and then I I, I kind of uh, licked my wounds from my first bowling shoot, took a, a moment away from it, um, and then uh, went back at it, and uh, you know I somebody had written oh Pritzker will never finish this thing. And a, and a very close friend of mine called me and said, oh, that guy doesn't know you. You know, it, I never was intending, to, I would never would have dropped it. It was just sort of, I had to reconnoiter, regroup, let my wounds heal and go at it again because I was hell-bent on getting the movie that I, I wanted to make. Well, the thing is, uh, when you start out to tackle a project like Bunny Bolden's story or Louis Armstrong's story, it's not the kind of project that you enter into lightly or that you're going to walk away from. Anybody who, with any kind of metal within them, um, you're going to keep going until it's done. So I'm not surprised that you have now finished it and it is about to be released for everyone to see. It's just amazing and I'm glad you stuck with it, Dan. You mentioned the difference between the darker notes of Bolden, the lighter notes of Lewis. Your cinematography here, bringing in Neil Norton on his first film. I mean, his work as a camera operator is insane uh, over the years. And I think you made a really wise choice with Neil because of your visual total bandwidth. You've got the Technicolor Louis Armstrong radio broadcast scenes. You've got the, the, the dark blacks, the negative space, the greens of the asylum, and then the sepia and the washed-out tones of Bolden's memories. 
And Neil has covered all of those pallets in all the work he's done. So I, I, I'm so glad you, you you recognize that. I really am. Neil is brilliant. I mean, he, when when I started to work with Neil, he was camera operator for Velmosh. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but he had done, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 movies oh. with some of the great directors and great uh, DPs of, of all time. And we got to be good friends. And he, um, I gathered early on that he really got what I wanted to do. And I think the first shoot, 2007, really a big part of that was me learning how to make film mm-hmm. and also meeting people that were on the same page as I was on and could really help me make the film I wanted to make. Neil is brilliant, and I, I really think he is. Uh, and it was one of the most fun collaborations of my life working with Neil. Well, and the visuals here are so important, Dan, because this boils down to music and visuals. You have very little dialogue in here. Um, You do have some killer speeches that Ian McShane gets to give in a very godlike, condescending fashion, but it really comes down to the music and the visuals, so you really need somebody whose visuals can be as strong as Winton's music. Uh, Neil is wonderful. He really is quite something, and it's really been a joy to work with the guy. And uh, he had not done. Uh, I, 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 he, had, I think he had lived some television commercials and maybe some industrial films and things like that. But on major motion picture type stuff, he had really been um, a camera operator. Yeah. But so many of these guys that you work with, very experienced crew, these guys are filmmakers. Mm-hmm. One guy might happen to have a career as a grip or a gaffer or a camera operator, but the, the real truth is those guys are filmmakers and they know how the whole thing works and operates. There was a, a grip named Sean Devine, and I, we shot at a location in Atlanta, and I failed to get a shot that I had to have to have to have. Oh. Now we're back in North Carolina and we didn't we only had one wall of the environment. I, I and I needed another wall. I needed the back wall to get the shot I needed. And Sean Devine and Neil Norton and Jack English, the uh, gaffer <laughs> they made something out of nothing. And the shot is in the film, and you would never, ever know that we did not have the wall. They made it out of spit and bubble gum. I mean, it was... So what, I got to work at, you know, 6 in the morning, and I said, shit, guys, I gotta, I gotta get this shot. Uh, we don't have the wall. Or what. Man, it was amazing to watch these guys turn something, nothing into something. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, I've known many, many crew guys like that, and they don't just show up for a paycheck. They really, as you said, they are filmmakers, right down to your grips. Uh, And it shows in this particular film. You know, I'm curious, Dan, how did you go about designing your visual construct? Did the music, did Witten's music come first? Did your visuals come first? And coming up with this essentially triptych of visuals 
with the Technicolor Louis Armstrong, the black and green, and negative space use of the asylum scenes, and then your sepias. So interesting to use the word negative space because Neil and I talked about tenebrism, which is about negative space. And really, I'm I am not a cinephile. Mm -hmm. I like I like movies as much as the next person, uh, but. I was influenced a lot more by paintings. I was living in Florence at the time I wrote most of this story, surrounded by Renaissance paintings. And I was, I've always been uh, very visual in, the, in that way. And I wanted to tell a story through pictures rather than talking heads. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to make something mythological. And the Renaissance paintings really led, um, were a great way to look at making the visuals. Now when I, so for instance, the Battle Royale with those guys fighting in the ring. Mm -hmm. To me, that was very epic. The way we shot it, the event itself, it, it's meant to be a metaphor or an allegory. And, and the whole, film is meant to be an allegory in that respect. It's an allegory about the American soul. So Neil and I had these discussions and I'd show him paintings by Genelewski and Caravaggio and, and people like that and then he would show me photographs by Sally Mann and we really um, kind of came to a, an understanding, a meeting of the minds. It was just great in that respect. So uh, the music, we started recording the music about a year and a half before I started shooting mm -hmm. the first time because the actors had to learn how to mimic the instruments. Right. So probably 80, 90% of the music that Witten did was done well in advance of the first shoot. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to that stuff night and day and night and day I, I can't really articulate with precision what impact it had but I sat and looked at paintings and looked at photographs and listened to that music kind of all day every day while I was writing the story mm -hmm. well I have to say when you mention allegory allegory and metaphor the film is filled with that um, you know the shots that you have the stage shots in the, the black clubs so club, barn, um, with the women reaching up like snakes from the from the pits of hell, reaching out to who Ian McShane's character, Judge Perry, is equating to the devil in so many respects because of the non-righteousness of the music that he's playing. You've got all of this happening, and then you counter that with the lighter notes in of Bolden's memories where you have the, the white-on-white outdoor party scene, um, and then the bright bright white whenever he's with his girlfriend, the one that he loves, and the unapproving, you know, mother. But so beautifully executed, and, the you know, it's not just the soul, but it's also you really capture people's interpretations of good and evil in here and I just think it's so fabulous just to watch this all unfold it, it, I'm, 
thrilled you feel that way and that you you've gotten that you know I, I I did this thing and I wondered if anybody would know what the hell I made and uh, I, I showed it to my mother about a month ago my mom is 95 years old mm-hmm. very together she's 95 and so the night before I was screening it for her we were having dinner I said now ma it's violent and it's gotta and she said don't tell me (laughs) (laughs) don't explain it to me and then I showed her the film and we flipped the lights on afterward and I could see that she had been crying and she completely got it it was it was uh, very (laughs) I called Wynn and I told him I don't have to show it to anybody else ever again my mother loves it that's the that's the true test the true The true test. How difficult was the casting for this? You know, Anthony was out, you reshot, you found Gary Carr to play Buddy. And as amazing as he is, I think the more challenging performance comes from Rena Wilson as Louis Armstrong because there is so much footage of him that exists. And uh, what he delivers right down to his finger movements, because Armstrong, when you watch him, watch him as something like uh, Hello Dolly, Thoroughly Modern Millie, even High Society, and his fingers very straight. He doesn't arch them. A lot of trumpet players will arch their fingers. He doesn't. That He holds them up very straight. And I'm looking at these little ticks, these little nuances that Reno put into the character. Spot on, Louis Armstrong. Spot on. When we cast for Armstrong, we, I must have seen 40 people. And I think Reno was either number 39 or number 40. Mm-hmm. And when he came in the room, we walked in in a period suit with his horn. He never broke character. And I, I think I had to choke back tears because you can... Trying to do Louis Armstrong, you could fall hard on your face trying to do that. And, you know, the difference between impersonating somebody and actually being the guy. And Witten is, I mean, uh, Reno was just the guy, you know. In fact, I was so concerned about casting Armstrong, I thought at one point, that you'd never see him. You'd only hear him through the radio because I was so concerned that nobody could really come up with a mm-hmm. credible Armstrong. And as soon as Reno walked in, about five minutes into his thing, into his audition, I went, oh my God, this guy can do it. He is the guy. Yeah. I, I Just within seconds of him being on screen at the beginning of the film when the radio broadcast starts and we jump into this glorious Technicolor theater, you know, ballroom where he's performing, and I was doing double takes, right down to the handkerchief, the sweat, the demeanor of, of you know, bending his head down, and the way he would turn, and, the, and holding, holding the trumpet, just amazing, but it was that energy that really comes across, the sincerity and his love for what he's doing, and it just really absolutely mind-blowing to watch Reno in this role. I agree. How important for, number one, you are a musician. 
So obviously your your musicality played heavily into the structure of this film, particularly with your editing, working with Thomas Nordberg, who is another masterful artisan that you have on the film, uh, and Chris Steel, uh, Nicholson. But how important or how musical were Reno and Gary coming into this? Did they have a sense of rhythm? Because this isn't just taking a role and performing it. You really have to feel that rhythm and the soul of this music. Was this a factor? Um, Reno Reno is exceptional. I mean, he's a real fine musician. In fact, he could play, he never played the trumpet before this. He basically taught himself the trumpet and could play every one of those tunes. Mm -hmm. Now, his intonation was not Witten Marsalis. It is, you know, technique was not Witten, but he could play the stuff. I I believe that Reno's mom sang in the Metropolitan uh, Opera Chorus for many, many years. So Reno is very musical. He sang all that stuff. I mean, that's his real voice wow. doing Armstrong. And he's he's exceptional. He, he, and, and a really fine musician in his way. Uh, uh, Gary is is much more of a dancer, moves really beautifully, and has the hand-eye coordination to have done a wonderful job on the um, mimicking Bolden's coronet. Mm -hmm. He does not have the musical background that Reno has, but he did a brilliant job, mm -hmm. and he's a very musical guy himself. Was this a help or a hindrance to you, Dan, that very little exists on Buddy Bolden and so much material exists on Louis Armstrong. I would not do a biopic on Armstrong because every minute of Armstrong's life is so documented. It becomes almost a caricature of the guy. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of musical biopics, although I think Bohemian Rhapsody was terrific. Uh, but uh, the fact that there was so little known history about Bolden was really the inducement and the exciting part for me because I got to make it up and I got to do something. I wanted to do something that was more of an allegorical story, mm -hmm. um, an allegory about the, Amer the soul of America, something larger than the, than the life of the man himself. Right. Was it difficult to, to find this structure that you came up with, entering the world, the mind of Buddy Bolden through Louis Armstrong's radio broadcast? That was my big moment when I realized that Armstrong had played a gig and it was broadcast on the radio five months before Bolden died. That was my aha moment. What if the radio got turned in, turned on in the asylum? That really opened the door for me. Because I, I think it's I, I brilliant. I have to admit, maybe that, that that's the inside of my brain. I mean, that's <laughs> how I think, kind of way. Uh, well, I know they're going to take you away from me, Dan. So just very quickly, I just want to ask you before, before we depart here, what did you now learn about yourself in writing and directing Bolden that you can take forward into your next passion project? Well, I have a lot more experience in filmmaking, and I have some idea of the degree of difficulty. I wonder if I knew back then 
what I know now, whether I would have attempted this. <laughs> it's been a very arduous and difficult journey um, with, with a lot of pain, but also a lot of satisfaction. And finally, I've, I, I, I'm really pleased with the way the film came out. And um, I think it gives me a lot more confidence were I to do this again. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go at it with a lot more confidence and I would also say that choosing cast and crew is about 102% of the whole operation. <laughs> well, I hope you do make something again. I am in love with this film. It is fabulous. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that and I'm going to call my mom right now and tell her. And that was the wonderful Dan Pritzker talking about Bolden. Bolden will be in theaters this Friday. Uh, We're going to hold on to my interview with Reno Wilson for a bit here because we are welcoming to Behind the Lens Vilan Trub. Did I pronounce your name right? Uh, Vilan Trub. Yeah, yeah, very close, actually. Vilan Trub. Welcome, Vilan. How are you? Thank you for joining us. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I have to say, the dirty kind. I didn't know what to expect with this film, um, but your tagline of "things go all go wrong for a politician, a hooker, two gangsters, and a PI" um, that's a good summary of this film. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm glad to hear. <laughs> where? Did the idea for this film come? Because something that you do here, we start with one little piece of a politician and a hooker. And there's a storyline happening there. And then you layer on top of that and you bring in more people. Then you bring in more people. And then you bring in more people. And everybody, talk about six degrees of separation. Everything piles on top and is fed by what came before it. So uh, so that uh, yeah. by the time we get through 85 minutes of the film, we understand all the moving parts and all the puzzle pieces. Uh, yeah, I mean, when I made this movie, uh, just the inception of it, I, I knew I wanted to make a crime thriller, a hard-boiled film noir, a genre movie. Uh, and, and one of the reasons was there's already a foundation to build off of. Uh, certain tropes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when thinking about that, I started obviously studying, doing research, watching the movies, reading the books. Uh, and and uh, one of the things I wanted to do was not create a mystery, but like you said, sort of create this world where it's just a lot of characters and you get to watch something unfold. In terms of thinking what could sort of be the spark that sets off that, that uh, snowball, uh, Anthony Weiner is very often in the news, <laughs> and I just kept thinking to myself, you know, it's such a, he's such a hysterical character. It's usually those hysterical characters that are, you know, at the center of all these film noirs. You know, just just this bumbling character that sort of does something that causes everyone else to tumble. Uh, and it, you can find it in movies in you know the 30s and the 40s, and you yeah. can find it in inspirations I took from more recent films like Fargo, where it's sort of you know the criminals, the ones who are supposed to be the most terrifying usually end up being the most hilarious mm-hmm. in the movie. So once I had that sort of set up uh, where, where this politician who's just 
very immoral, you know, obviously likes to take uh, pictures of himself and text them, uh, which mirrors reality. Uh, and, and how that character sort of destroys the world around him. Then I had something for the PI to investigate. Mm-hmm. And, and th- what I loved is that when the PI comes into, enters into the story, he is, he's unaware of what the senator has done. And and the the senator's part of the story, he gets some random jobs from you know the attorney that feeds him work, and it's only through his he stumbles into things that give him more clues and that pick things up. Nothing you know everything. There's a lot of stumbling into things here, and I really love that because it's like none of them are really that bright, but for you know Raymond, your PI. He's brighter than most of them. But the rest of them, as you said, you've got, you know, your quote-unquote, your bad guys. Uh, and they are, they're hilarious. I mean, it's hilarious to watch the things that happen because of their ineptitude, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, I mean, in, in terms of the P.I. character, it's, they're never really geniuses. It's just they're operating in a world with such morons. <laughs> that they come off as smart, and they're usually self-referential. They know it. If you think about the Humphrey Bogart P.I., him playing Philip Marlowe or Sam yeah. Spade, he knew he's not a genius. He just knew the people he was, you know, sort of operating around happened to be that much lower. Well, I... uh, and, and what I wanted to do with this movie was sort of create the prequel to the P.I., where, you know, we're, we're not introduced to this grizzled, older P.I., we're introduced to someone who's a PI and has ambition and, and sees a future in this career. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the case that destroys that ambition and turns him into that, into that you know, grizzled whiskey bottle PI that we know and love. Mm-hmm. Well, and I have to say, when you had Duke Williams, he gives a really fine performance uh, playing Raymond, our, our PI. But, you know, two other performances I absolutely think are perfection here with your casting. John Mertens as Mickey, who is more or less the heavy bad guy, and his quote-unquote partner, uh, John, who is so much more of a lightweight. He's a family man. No, I can't go with you. I'm decorating the the Christmas tree, uh, played by Ed Glynn. The two of them are a very interesting pairing. I'm curious how you came up with John and Ed uh, to take on the roles of Mickey and... John. Well, I, every good movie, you know, it's it, every character almost sort of needs to be a caricature different from each other. In reality, we're all a lot closer to each other than we are different. Uh, and, and it's only through knowing each other and having years of conversations that we learn about the differences between each other, even our closest friends. In a movie, you don't have time for that. So for someone to be on screen, they need to be very unique compared to everyone else. Uh, and, and even with the, the two criminals. Uh, in terms of sort of casting uh, the way I did and, and having them be the way they are, well, one of the movies I took inspiration was uh, Shoot the Piano Player by Francois Truffaut, mm-hmm. where you sort of had these two, two uh, criminals where it's almost like an old Looney Tunes cartoon, where one is a big, strong, heavy guy, and the other one sort of seems like, like the sweetheart, but for some reason they're both always in the car together. Uh, and, and I thought, A, you can get a lot of humor from that, but B, the, you, you get something cynical from that, because the fact of the matter is, there are people like that, and, and people do die as a result of them. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it just, you know, very well done in, in that respect, you know, and, and Mickey's henchmen just add, they add a whole layer of inherent comedy that you want to laugh out loud at what happens, but you also don't because what happens because of their buffoonery is so tragic. Uh, yeah. You know, and I, I like how, the, how you play with that. Now, because you wrote, you directed, you're cinematographer, you produced, as you were writing this, were you already working on your visuals while you were writing, or did you get the script done and then worry about putting your visuals, to, uh, get designing your, your visual construct? Uh, I mean, visually, I, I definitely knew the feeling that I wanted from it. And that's sort of going back. I love wider lenses and I love the movies of Orson Welles and like touch of evil, stuff like that. So I knew it sort of wanted to look like that, but in terms of specific shot blocking out for me, first and foremost, it was about creating the suspense and, and establishing the characters and, and making sure everything made sense. Uh, I mean, when writing, I mean, it's yes and no, whether you're thinking visually, there's a great book by uh, uh, V.I. Pudovkin called uh, On Film Technique, uh, and, and it's sort of like my Bible to, to cinema. It's, when you write, it's not that you're necessarily thinking about the, the visual aspect, but you have to be thinking as an editor. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that, if that makes any sense, but, yeah. but you're, you're, you're definitely thinking about something. Now, you bring, you bring up editing there because you are thinking about something, and ultimately whatever is going to the final look that you want Obviously, editing mm-hmm. is thrown in there. And you've got Adam Bertocci and Elliot Worth in there as your editors. Were they editing yeah. as you were going? Did you wait until everything was shot? What was this? Because we all know Tyler Perry is one of the, he's one of the sharpest tools in the shed mm-hmm. here. Uh, when it comes to shooting, he knows what he's doing. He's editing in his head. As soon as he gets something, he realizes, okay, if I just spin the camera, that'll save me editing later on in post um, mm-hmm. you know, were you working closely with Adam and Elliot during the shoot or just wait to the end, let them do a pass, and then you come in? Mm-hmm. Well, the movie was shot in nine days, so there, there wasn't much opportunity <laughs> for editing during the, the actual shoot. But, uh, yeah, what, what I generally do is, uh, after finishing the shoot, handing over the footage to sort of let the editors do a pass, put together an assembly, put together a first cut, and then, like most filmmakers, I sort of jump in uh, and sort of get the movie to, to where I know it needs to be. Mm-hmm. You know, something that, that I find very interesting with this film are the locations that you've chosen. Did you shoot this in, in Queens? I'm sorry, what's that? Did you shoot your locations here? Number one, your exterior. Um, did you shoot this in Queens? Yeah, this was shot along Queens Boulevard. Uh, it, it was shot in Forest Hills, Regal Park, Kew Gardens. Uh, and, and what I love about the neighborhood is that, it, it, like a lot of New York, every two blocks looks like a different neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So you save a lot of time because instead of having to find all these locations, you just turn the camera 180 degrees and you're filming an entirely different place. Mm-hmm. You know, now, you also have here, and, and I love that, because we do get a, we get a sense of that this, is t- that this is transpiring. All these events are transpiring throughout the city. Uh, as, mm-hmm. So you do a beautiful job of giving us, you know, a wide berth of, you know, of area that's being covered and where things are taking place. Um, but I'm curious, you have a lot of interiors, and they're very, 
narrow doorways, narrow hallways, very claustrophobic, and very difficult for shooting in, uh, in terms of navigation. But it also can serve twofold to help create an intimacy and the quiet moments, particularly where Raymond goes to the one house party. And, you know, it's very cramped. There's not much room. You've got your framing is much, it's much tighter there. Uh, so we're closing in on, on Raymond and the girl he's talking to. Uh, how was that for you, d- establishing those shots, designing all of those interiors? Because you're also giving us different perspectives within a very small space because mm-hmm. of your camera movement. Well, there's something, you know, there's, I mean, the, one of the earliest places I, I saw sort of a ceiling uh, in, in a shot was uh, John Ford and what he was doing in Stagecoach and his movies. And there was something that I always loved about the low angle and seeing the ceiling uh, where, I mean, his purpose was to, to make the audience not feel like they're watching a studio set. Right. Granted, I wasn't shooting in a studio set. I, I still feel the technique works. There's something about the positioning of the camera that way and showing the world that way where, where you create this claustrophobic feeling. Now, you're saying where, where the rooms were small. For me, I, I sort of wanted that. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted that tight feeling, and especially there's a, some shots of Raymond when he's looking through an apartment and he's walking around in the dark and you just see a silhouette. Yes. Uh, you, you don't need much to sort of create an energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, just some light, some dark, you know, and a character going somewhere that you don't know where. And you can, you can pull off a lot. Mm-hmm. No, and I and I love the scene you're talking, the sequence you're talking about with Raymond walking mm-hmm. around in the one apartment that he is quote unquote broken into, um, and particularly the bathroom. When he gets into the bathroom, you do some really nice maneuvers in there because you've got mirrors in the bathroom, and you know you've got your Hitchcockian moment where he you know pulls back the shower curtain. Um, you know, you don't at that point. You don't know what to expect. There could have been something there. Um, so you do a really nice job in there as you take him from room to room in the dark, and then he turns the light on. He turns it off, which is something we don't see too often. Uh, with all the films that I know, I'm sure you have seen, so often either nobody turns the light on, or if they turn it on, they leave it on and forget they turned it on. So to actually have somebody with the wherewithal to turn the light on and then turn it off. That stood out for me as, <laughs> as something in the character. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this character, like I said, he, he's a novice at, at being a PI. You know, he, he's so young at this. So for him, in his mind, he walked into an apartment, even though, you know, he got in there the way he did. He turned off a light. His manners tell him to, to leave the place how he found it. Yeah. Even if it's possibly the scene of a horrible crime. Yeah. When, of course, common sense should also tell you to do that, but it's not something that we typically do see in, in crime thrillers. Like, you either don't turn anything on and you're tripping over things and leaving, you know, think, breaking things, or you turn the light on and you never turn it off. So then somebody knows right away that, okay, somebody was here. Uh, so, but here, he actually, he covered his tracks be it through manners or be it through common sense, but it worked and it actually told, gave us another insight into the character of Raymond. And you appreciated why he takes his job as a PI so seriously. 
Yeah, and and you know after this case, he he sort of is the real PI to baptism yeah. by fire. Yeah. Where where after this case, he becomes that sort of uh, Raymond Chandler type Philip Marlowe character. Mm-hmm. He becomes. Uh, you know, the, the P.I. in Chinatown who gets his nose lights open and it's not his first barbecue. <laughs> uh, we, we get to see sort of, you know, all those P.I.s always have the story of the really bad thing that happened to them that sort of changed them forever. And with this movie, I wanted to sort of show that happened. Mm-hmm. Now, because, the, because we do, we see where Raymond is at the end of the film, is there a chance that you would be doing a sequel to this focusing in on Raymond? I mean, it's not something I necessarily thought about, but then again, you really don't think about something until someone comes at you with a bag of money, you know? <laughs> uh, in terms of what a sequel to this movie would be, it, it's tough for me to say because pretty much every P.I. movie we know and love is a sequel to this movie in my mind. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't think of a specific case, you know, that, that it would have to be Raymond involved in or if it's just a more general sort of uh, P.I. movie. Uh, but but obviously you you can do stuff because now this character is who he is, and, yeah. and there's so much material to pull from out there. Yeah, and he's a very likable character. He's a very likable yeah, character. Yeah, I mean, I attribute that a lot to, to to Duke Williams, you know, but also the mustache. There's something <laughs> about a good mustache. People love a good mustache. <laughs> just ask Clark Gable. Uh, there was just something on social yeah. media this week where people had talked about... Uh, a film where he had to sh- shave his mustache off, and it just didn't work. Did not work. Um, so, yeah, a good mustache always helps. Now, you mentioned the all-important thing. Somebody throwing a bag of money. If somebody throws a bag of money mm-hmm. at you, maybe you'll do a sequel. Did someone throw a bag of money at you to do the dirty kind? Or how did you go about, because it is so difficult for filmmakers with, with quote-unquote, low-budget, no-budget mm-hmm. films to get them made because of money. Yeah. Well, money should never be a roadblock in, in making your, your first movies. I understand, you know, if you, you make some movies that aren't hugely funded, you sort of burn out. But if your idea is to go out and make a movie, I, I know people who are waiting for budgets. I know people who told me not to make the 30 kind and said, make short films and then get a bigger budget through those short films. And then I asked them, you make short films? They said, yes. I said, has anybody come to you with a budget for a bigger film? They said, no. So I'm like, why would I go do that? What kind of advice is that? <laughs> so, you know, everybody's got to find what works for them. But but I, I always say don't let uh, not having money be a roadblock. Just figure out how to make a movie for less money. I, I mean, telling a story isn't expensive. Just just figure out a, an interesting story to tell and then put it on screen. Mm-hmm. There's movies out there about two people sitting at a table talking for two hours, and then they made it semi-interesting, you know? So, so just go out and do it. It's better to make a bad movie for no budget than have no movie waiting for a bigger one. Mm-hmm. Now, do you find that your your prior experience, because you did you did two uh, shorts that you were editor on, did had, did all of this come into play? And this is your second feature. The Dirty Kind is your second feature yeah. as a director. Do, do you yeah. feel more confident with this? Does your own editing experience does that help give you confidence? to go for to make the leap and to continue to make feature films oh yeah i mean every everything in, in my life is you know uh goes into this and then gives the confidence and is the experience you know something that happens to you at five years old shapes who you are and your personality so so obviously everything i've done 
professionally, you know, is in the dirty kind. And I get asked, you know, how was it possible to make this movie in nine days on the budget that it was made? Well, if you think about the 20 years I spent before watching movies, studying movies, working on movies, failing, you know, that it's, it's you're going to fail way more than you're going to succeed. Uh, and I'm still failing, you know, way more days of the week than I'm succeeding. It's about what do you learn from it and how do you transform that into success, you know, on, on that on that seventh day of the week. Mm-hmm. So now, that, now after your ninth day of shooting and now that the film is, is going out into the world here, what have you learned that you can take forward into your next feature film? I learned that I can definitely uh, keep keep an audience's interest for an hour and a half, stretch it into two hours. Uh, I, I definitely, you know, for me, it, it's not about being an artist. I feel if you set out to be an artist, you're going to fail because anything you do is going to be artistic because you're the person doing it. It's impossible not to do it with the stamp of your personality, viewpoints, uh, experience, and so forth. I try to set out to sort of understand what makes movies work, what makes certain genres work, certain shots work, stuff mm-hmm. like that, and then piece it all together with my personal taste. Uh, and, and what this movie taught me was that that, that sort of formula uh, worked. So now it's just a matter of sort of fine-tuning it, uh, figuring out the stuff that I wasn't happy with in this movie, uh, and, and, and sort of getting closer to, to my idea of I made I made a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. So if you could change something in the dirty kind, now that, now that it's all finished, but if you had the chance mm-hmm. to go back and change something, what would you change? Oh, easy. There's a party scene early on where Raymond walks into a, a room and, and finds uh, Grace sitting there on a couch looking out a window. You've got to give her a cigarette and crack open that window. She has to have a reason to be in that room uh, away from the rest of the party. Uh, I also wouldn't have them sitting against the wall. I mean, a lot of that was just as a result of, you know, when when you're shooting a movie in so limited a time, sometimes you only have half an hour to to shoot something. Sure. Uh, but but that's something that every time I watch it, I, it just she has to have a reason for being in that room. Because as of right now, the way I see it, it's her only reason for being there is to have an excuse for for Raymond to walk into another room and have a conversation with her. Mm-hmm. Or she just wanted to get away from everybody. Well, that's what you tell yourself. But the reality of the matter is, when you're <laughs> making a movie, you know you you can't use the excuses. You have to give the concrete, uh, the concrete, you know, something that can't be disproven. It's got to. You've got to have that foundation there. How many pages? Yeah. Uh, with a nine day shoot, Milan, I've got to ask you: How many pages a day were you shooting? Oh, that's not even something keeping track of. <laughs> I can tell you as an example, the the scene uh, at uh, uh, Lee's office where he's speaking with a journalist and then that whole thing, inside those offices we were supposed to have four hours to shoot, which is already a, a small amount of time. When we get there, we're told we only have two hours to oh shoot. Oh, my God. So that entire, yeah, that entire scene was shot in two hours, and... And what are you going to do, not shoot it? You, you get there, you say, okay, let's get the camera over here, you over here, you over there. You know, that's why I'm very big on rehearsals. I want to make sure the actors know their lines and make sure the lines work. So that once we get there, we can just start, you know, mm-hmm. doing what we have to do. How much rehearsal time did you have for The Dirty Kind? I had about, it was from a week to two weeks 
rehearsals, but okay. it was all scattered where I would have three days with maybe Duke because he had a majority of the lines right. and a day with another actor, two days with another actor. But it was spread around uh, two days prior to the nine-day shoot. Mm-hmm. And everybody and got I was some willing rehearsal. To, it, it was more, yeah, it was more important for me to have more rehearsal time than actual shooting time because I didn't want to be rehearsing on set. Right. Especially with such a limited amount of time to shoot to begin with. You know, how, mm-hmm. yeah. how precious are you with the words on the page when they're your words that you've written? Do you, do you want the actors to stick to them, strictly mm-hmm. stick to them, or do you give them room to ad-lib or give you input on what might flow better in the moment? On set, they need to, to stick to the script, but that's why we have rehearsals. During rehearsals, you know, any line is capable to change if it doesn't work. That's why you have the rehearsals. And, and there's a process you go through where you sort of ask yourself, okay, if something's not working, A, uh, is, you know, does the actor know the lines? Is that why it doesn't work? B, do they understand why they're delivering the lines? Because sometimes the actors are delivering lines and they don't understand why that character is delivering them. Mm-hmm. And if they understand why they're delivering them and it still doesn't work, well, maybe the line just doesn't work and you need to go back and rethink the line to, to convey what you want to convey. Uh, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I know I'm the writer of a movie, but the only thing that matters is, is it going to be a good movie? Mm-hmm. And the movie's going to make that, not me writing it. So, where can everybody see The Dirty Kind? The Dirty Kind is coming out this Thursday mm-hmm. uh, in uh, Los Angeles. It starts Monday, uh, Thursday, May 2nd at uh, Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. And then Friday it starts a week's run at uh, Music Hall in Beverly Hills. Very nice. And, and oh. later this summer it's going to be available on home video, DVD, streaming, the whole, the whole nine yards. The whole kit and caboodle later this summer. Yeah. Now, any other city openings, or is it just going to be here in L.A. for, for the theatrical? It's just going to be limited in L.A., and, and just through my experience in doing the festival run with this movie, uh, even though I'm in New York, uh, I'm in New York right now, L.A. is a movie town. It, mm-hmm. it was, it is, and it is, always will be. Uh, and, and I couldn't be happier to have my movie opening up over there. Uh, well, Volan, I can't thank you enough for joining me on Behind the Lens today. This has been a real treat to have you. Um, everybody, the dirty kind. If you're in L.A., you can see it starting this Thursday in, in Santa Monica at the, at the Monica, uh, which I love that theater, and I love the theater manager there. They're wonderful people over there. Same thing with, with the Lemley Music Hall on, at Wilshire and Doheny. Um, you, you've got the film in two good spots for, a, for an independent film. Theaters that truly appreciate the indie filmmaker and their work. So, thank you very much. Wow. So, I hope you'll come back on the show again with another project. I'm sure you have many up your sleeve. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, someone's waiting with that bag of money. I got to get in the way of it. <laughs> oh, Valon, thank you so much. And I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye bye. And that was Villan Trube, the writer, director, producer, and cinematographer of The Dirty Kind. And as Villan said, you can see it starts Thursday night, May 2nd, at, at the uh, Lemley Monica in Santa Monica, just two blocks off the beach. And Friday, starting at Lemley Music Hall at, at Wilshire and Doheny. So that is all the time we have today. We did not get to Reno Wilson's interview. That will go up on BehindTheLensOnline.net.
And it may also be on somewhere else, but I can't say because it depends if I can master the fine art of doing this editing job uh, that I want to do on it. But it will be out. Uh, Bolden, in theaters and limited release this Friday. See it, see it. My full review on that will be out when the embargo lifts later this week. And again, Avengers. See it. If you haven't, go see it. If you have, see it again. Next Monday, very exciting. My pal, Dion Taylor, is going to be joining us for the hour, and we're going to be talking about The Intruder. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 